Thank you, Mark, for sharing with us what the Lord is doing in Romania. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to see um, that church go up and so many of those people come in order to hear the word of God. And uh, clearly the Lord has been using uh, you and your family and so many others to do just that. And really I can't think of a better uh, transition into this morning's message given what you kept emphasizing again and again, which is that uh, even though you could not see a way to go forward, uh, the Lord provided and ultimately the Lord had a plan that he was accomplishing. This morning, we are going to return to the book of Genesis. For those of you who have not been with us, we are making our way through Genesis, and this morning we come to Genesis 14, so have your finger there in the text. One of the things I love about preaching through the Old Testament is that you come to texts like Genesis 14. For many of us today, in the 21st century, texts like Genesis 14 may seem really, really strange. Kings going to war with one another. A pilgrim like Abram deciding he's going to join into this battle. A sudden blessing from this priest who comes out of nowhere, and his name is Melchizedek. What does all of this have to do with God's plan and God's promise to bless Abram that he made so clear in Genesis 12? Well, this story may seem odd to you. Actually, it is yet another step, a crucial step, in the plan of God to carry out his promise to Abram and ultimately to the nations. So let's dive into the text without taking any more time. Genesis 14 introduces a warfare between kings. On the one side, you have this eastern coalition of four kings. On the other side, you have a western coalition of five kings. And these two coalitions go to war with one another. Why? Well, in verse 4, we're told why. For 12 years, that second coalition had paid tribute, meaning that they had given financially. And in the 13th year, they said, no more. And so they rebelled. And verse 5 tells us that in the 15th year, war broke out as that first coalition of kings were ready to subdue those who had rebelled. In other words, they were going out to reassert their authority over these territories. Well, this warfare that took place resulted with that eastern coalition of kings being victorious. In fact, we read in verse 10, that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled as they did. And as they fled, notice what the text says there. As they fled, 
Some of their men fell into bitumen pits, resulting in their capture. However, others took to the hill country, which might explain how some of these other kings and their people and their armies escaped. As was typical in war, and if you were alive at this time in the Old Testament, you would have understood that in a war like this, the victor takes the spoils. In this case, this included all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. And keep in mind that in chapter 13, we learned that Lot made the unwise decision of settling where? Sodom. And in chapter 14, we discover that now Lot was not only near Sodom, but he was actually dwelling within Sodom. You have to understand how disturbing this would be to read this as an Israelite. This man had taken his family, and he had not only gone further and further away from the land of promise, but he had even come to dwell within this people that the Lord previously called very wicked. And as a consequence, Lot, who was the son of Abram's brother, Lot and all of his possessions, including his own family, they're taken captive. Once again, we see that Lot made a poor choice. And now these choices of his are having serious consequences. Well, Abram, meanwhile, was dwelling in the land of promise, while Lot went as far east as Sodom. The contrast, I don't want you to miss this, the contrast between Lot and Abram in the text could not be greater. Lot continues to spiral downward, and we're going to see that in the weeks to come moving away from the land of promise, entering into the company of evil and wicked men. Abram, on the other hand, stays in the land of promise. And he continues to wait upon the Lord for the blessing that God had promised to him. As a result of Lot's choices here, it looks as if, well, his future is over. Since not only is he captured, but all of his possessions, all the possessions that he had received from being tied so closely to Abram, they've all been compromised. And he and his family are now in a serious position as well. But nevertheless, God is going to do something here So graciously, God is going to do something here that is going to just bestow mercy and grace upon Lot, perhaps when he least deserves it. God is going to send Abram into this dangerous situation. And remember, Abram is the one through whom the seed is going to come But nevertheless, God is going to send him into this dangerous situation 
in order to rescue Lot. So look with me at Genesis 14, verses 13 through 16. In verse 13, it says that one man had escaped this horrific battle scene. And this man goes to Abram, whom the text calls a Hebrew, which would have been a label used typically by those who were not Israelites to refer to someone who had descended from Abram. In fact, later on in the Old Testament, this label is even given to the nation of Israel, a nation of Hebrews. Here, Abram is called a Hebrew, probably to distinguish him from Mamre the Amorite. And look at verse 13. Notice what it says there. It gives us some very important details. Abram the Hebrew was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite. And then it goes on and it says, these were allies of Abram. Does this sound strange to you? After all, Abram is the one that God made his promises to, not these others. And yet here, he is an ally with them and them with him. What had likely taken place is that Abram had entered into some sort of a treaty with these people. Amorites, and in this event, such a treaty would have greatly benefited him for part of the responsibility of being an ally was when those you had joined company with, when they were in trouble, you were to come to their aid. And that's exactly what happens here. Verse 14 says that Abram went to rescue Lot with 318 of his own trained men. But Abram also had the help of these allies. Verses 14 and following, they then tell us that Abram came with these men and he sneaked up on his enemy at night, which would have been very strategic if you were going to have the element of surprise And he overtook them. In doing so, Abram regained Lot. And not just Lot, but all of his possessions, including his own family. In short, Abram had rescued his own kinsman, Lot. We're going to see in a minute. We're going to take a little bit of a trail off of this battle in a second here, but what we're going to return to in a minute is that these seemingly ordinary circumstances, circumstances that seem quite overwhelming, God is at work in them. Before we do do so, I want you to see what happens next in the story, specifically in verses 17 through 20. What transpires next is absolutely key to understanding whether or not Abram will continue to trust in God's promise. When Abram returns from the battle, he's approached by two different kings. Notice that? 
two very different kings. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem, whose name was Melchizedek. Now remember, the king of Sodom was defeated, but Abram had come to the rescue and took back all the possessions that were taken. The story, though, goes on and it describes a second king. Who's the second king? He's the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Salem can be identified with Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, as we're going to learn in a minute, Melchizedek was not only a king, but he was a priest as well. And not just any priest. He was a priest who served and worshipped the one true God. Now, people, you have to keep in mind that this is before Moses. This is before the law at Sinai. This is before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. Think how early on this is. Abram, the patriarch of God's people to come. And here is this priest who seems to come out of nowhere. My point, what I want you to see here, is that the text is contrasting these two kings. See the contrast. One is a king who has a history of leading a very wicked people. Sodom. Notice how that is so different from this other king who we know so little about. This king who's also a priest. A king priest who follows God just like Abram. Let's begin by looking at these two kings, but let's begin by first looking at Melchizedek, king of Salem. In Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek appears what seems to be out of nowhere, doesn't he? There is no buildup, nor are we introduced to his past. This is a surprising thing given all the genealogies that we have encountered so far. Rather, he is a king and a priest who suddenly pops up in the text. And yet, he is one who has enormous impact, though his appearance may be very, very brief. I want you to observe a couple of things with me. First of all, notice his name. His name is Melchizedek, which means what? King of righteousness. Also, notice that he is the king of Salem, which means king of peace. So he is a king of righteousness, and he is a king of peace. But here's the catch. He is not just a king, is he? No, this king of righteousness is also a priest of righteousness as well. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, He was a priest of God Most High. This king, priest, 
is a follower of the one true and living God. The same God that Abram was following. And the same God who had called Abram out in order to bless him and to bless the nations. And since he, this, this king is not just an ordinary king, but also a priest of God, he has the right to bless Abram, which is exactly what he does. In verses 19 through 20, what is it that Melchizedek says? What does this blessing consist of? He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. This blessing is also a praise. For Melchizedek praises God for delivering Abram's enemies into his hands. This observation brings us all the way back to the title of this sermon, Victory Belongs to the Lord. Both Abram and Melchizedek, they both recognized that Abram's victory, it was not his own doing. These horrific events, warfare, where there's blood being shed, lives being lost, this tragic character Lot who's just caught up into the middle of all of this, who seems to be hopeless. All of these details are being orchestrated by God. Even the sending of Abram into the middle of it so that victory would belong to the Lord. Don't miss when we are reading through the Old Testament God's providential hand at work in what seemed to either be ordinary details or hopeless situations. The text doesn't necessarily have to even mention God's name, it's there. This is his story. This is his plan. And he is most relevant to what is taking place because it's his doing. Victory was given to Abram by God. That is what Melchizedek's blessing is saying. It's not just a mere blessing on Abram, but it is worship. Worship of God who is the one who gave this victory in the first place, whose plan is unfolding so that this man, Abram, his seed, will be the one through which the nations are blessed. So Abram would be blessed 
But he would be blessed because, and this is key to understanding this story, he would be blessed precisely because he was the Lord's chosen one, the one who would inherit the land and whose descendants would bless the nations as a result. Such a blessing, it also shows that through Abram, God's chosen one, Melchizedek, is superior. For he is the one who blesses Abram. Abram does not bless Melchizedek. Now, just pause here for a minute with me and just think through how surprising this is. Here is this man, this king and priest that we know little about. And he comes and blesses Abram, the patriarch, God's chosen one, the very one whose seed is to receive the blessings God had promised and the one whose name is going to be great because of the Lord. If we were writing this story, we would have had it the other way around. You see? That's not what happens, is it? It's Melchizedek who comes and blesses Abram. It's Abram whose knees hit the ground before this priest in order to be the recipient of his blessing. Certainly, Abram recognized the superiority of Melchizedek as God's priest and king. Because what does he do? Abram then tithes a tenth of everything he owns to this priest. And paying tithes to Melchizedek, Abram was paying tithes to God. This is God's priest. He was giving God the credit for the victory, anticipating that God's promise, which seems so far away, God's promise would continue. I mean, people think about this. If you are going to be the one who, whom God is going to make great, whose name is going to be great, whose descendants are going to be as many as the dust on the earth, does it make sense for you to give away a tenth of what you own? No. Unless this is God's priest. And God's blessing and God's victory. I want to take a moment here. We don't have a ton of time to play this out, but I want to take and and really digress for a second and talk about Melchizedek. And specifically jump way ahead to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 through 10 
Because I want you to see that this short story and this figure who we know so little about, Hebrews has so much to say about him. And the most important thing the book of Hebrews has to say is that this priest is a type of Christ who was to come. We don't have time to unpack the book of Hebrews, but a few points seem crucial. For starters, Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews again and again is pointed to as a priest who is a type of Christ to come. He foreshadows Christ not only as a king, a king of righteousness and peace, but also as a priest of God most high. When we talk about Christ, when we discuss who Christ is and what he has done as Christians, it's appropriate to say that Christ fulfills a threefold office prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And here, in the book of Hebrews, it's that priestly role that's focused upon. Psalm 110, a psalm that we worked through this past winter, and the book of Hebrews, they both highlight Christ as our great high priest. And they do so by pointing us back, all the way back to Genesis 14, in order to show us that Melchizedek is a type of a priest, a much greater priest to come, who is Jesus Christ. You might be asking yourself, how Melchizedek is a type of Christ to come in his priesthood? In Hebrews 5 and 6, 7 and 8, all the way through chapter 10, we won't look there, but you can do so on your own time, the author says that Jesus is a priest But what is so shocking is that he is not a priest out of the lineage of Aaron, out of the tribe of Levi. Instead, he is a priest of a different order, in the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is this so important? I want to give you two reasons. First of all, it's important because Jesus Being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood is eternal. It's eternal. Hebrews 7 recounts the encounter between Abram and Melchizedek. And then the author says of Melchizedek in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, catch that word, resembling, type, resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. I don't think the author is saying that Melchizedek never died, nor did he have physical parents. Rather, he is making the simple observation that in the narrative, Melchizedek just appears all of a sudden in Genesis 14 
without any explanation, and then he's gone from the story. No genealogy is given. Scripture never records when he was born or when he died. And so Hebrews can take this and point to it in order to say that his priesthood has no end. In this way, he points us forward to Jesus Christ and his priesthood to come. And this is why Hebrews 7.3 says, Melchizedek, he resembled the Son of God and continues a priest forever. In other words, while the priest from the order of Levi in the Old Testament lived and died, as finite men, Jesus is a priest, on the other hand, who is risen and therefore can always act as our priest, as priest of God's people. And therefore his priesthood is far superior to the priesthood of Levi. There's a second reason that this is so important. It's because Jesus is a priest, as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he is a priest of a better covenant. A better covenant. The priests in the Old Testament were from the lineage of Levi, carrying out the sacrificial system that was laid down in the law of Moses, a law that Israel disobeyed time and time again, a law that they they could not fulfill and that they would not listen to. It was a law that could not make them perfect, but only exposed their inability to keep it. Hebrews discusses this all throughout chapter 7. You see, the Levitical priests, they had to make sacrifices for God's people year after year after year. Again and again. And not only for the people, but for themselves as well. Why? Because even though they were priests, they too were sinners. And so, a different type of priest was needed. A priest from a different tribe even. This is why Hebrews 7.14 says that Jesus as Lord, descended from Judah. And yet, though he is from Judah, not Levi, he qualifies as our priest. Why? Why? Genesis 14. He is a priest. His appointment is not one of bodily descent. Instead, as Hebrews 7 says, it's by divine appointment, as it was with Melchizedek. Are you connecting the dots? Are you seeing how Genesis 14 relates to the entire New Testament and to you as one who is in Christ, our great high priest? But there's more. There's more. As a better priest, 
a priest by divine appointment, Jesus could bring about a better covenant, a new covenant. Remember, Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, whose name means what? King of righteousness. And so, unlike the priests of old who were sinful and had to offer sacrifices not only for the people's sins, but for their own sins, Christ comes in the line of Melchizedek. And He's perfect. He is sinless. He is the priest Melchizedek pointed forward to. And as the perfect, sinless priest, He could offer up Himself. Not another sacrifice. Not another animal. Himself. As the perfect, sinless, spotless offering for the forgiveness of sins. And so at the start of Hebrews 8, the author can say this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Why is it that Christ can sit down at the right hand of his Father? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why is the ascension of Christ after the resurrection so important? It's because as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he has brought about, accomplished, and secured for you and for me a better covenant through his own blood. All of this is to say that even here in Genesis 14, as early as Genesis 14, Melchizedek is pointing us forward. Forward to Christ to come. His actions in blessing Abram, they will have unbelievable consequences. When we get to the New Testament and we see Christ and the blessing that He has accomplished, a blessing that He gives to the nations, it's because of Genesis 14. Well, there's much, much more we could say, isn't there? But let's return back as we close to Genesis 14 and see how this story finishes. While Abram is blessed by God through Melchizedek, such a blessing is followed by a temptation and a test, one that comes from the king of Sodom. Look at verse 21 specifically. Genesis 14, verse 21. The king of Sodom presents Abram with a proposition. If you give to me all of my people back, I will give you, I will give you all the goods 
to keep. In other words, if Abram would return the king of Sodom's people, then the king of Sodom Sodom would bless Abram with all of these possessions. Notice, one blessing from one king is followed by another. But let me ask you a question. Are they both the same? You see, should Abram trust in the king of Sodom, it will have very different consequences. If he agrees, will this king of Sodom Sodom then be able to take credit for the future blessing God will bestow on Abram? That certainly seems to be the problem, isn't it? To accept this offer as intriguing and as as profitable as it must have appeared would have meant that this king could say later on that Abram's wealth was his own doing. Abram is being tested. Will he stick with God's promise? Is God's promise in Genesis 12 enough? Abram once again trusts in God when he rejects this offer. Notice verses 22 through 24. Notice his reason for doing so. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. You see, Abram has made the right choice, hasn't he? God granting him the victory and then sending Melchizedek to bless him was a bright and clear sign to Abram that God was, in fact, with him and that he was going to carry out the blessings that he had promised beforehand. To now take wealth of this king of Sodom, it would have been a sign of distrust, a sign of distrust in God's own promise, allowing this pagan king to lay claim to God's plan to make a great nation out of Abram. Abram recognizes that while this king is making him an offer that seems too good to refuse, Abram worships the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth, as Melchizedek said. He is the one who owns all things. So how could Abram now give in to this king so that this king could later say, I have made Abram rich? No, this credit belongs to God alone. God alone would be the one to claim responsibility for the Abrahamic blessing. God alone would be the one to be the source and the fountain from which the nations would be blessed. And so Abram was to wait once more upon the Lord. Rather than taking the immediate blessing 
in front of him, one he could see. Abram was to wait for that which was eternal, everlasting, a blessing that God had promised to him. As the last verse indicates, Abram was to accept nothing except what his men had eaten and the payment that was due to his allies. By way of application, surely reading this, if you were an Israelite receiving this, surely reading this must have given Israel such courage to trust in God. And it should for us today as well. God had given Abram victory over his enemies and then he had verified his promise with this blessing from this priest Melchizedek. The Israelites were descendants of Abraham and they worshipped the same God their forefathers worshipped. And so they too were to trust in God's promises even when their enemies invaded And all hope seemed to be lost. Fellowship Baptist Church as Christians in the New Covenant. Our warfare is not physical, but it's a spiritual warfare. But nonetheless, Genesis 14 should remind us, should remind us too that God is faithful to fulfill His promises. And victory in the end will be his. As a church, Abram's victory and blessing, it should move us to worship God. For his promises cannot be thwarted. And his blessing for us has now come through a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Christ Jesus, a priest of God most high. It's through our great priest that we too are recipients of the blessings Melchizedek gave to Abraham. And we have been adopted by God as children of Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Victory belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, how encouraging it is to read and listen to Genesis 14, these Details that sometimes seem foreign to us today are so important as we see your plan unfold again and again against all odds. Lord, as we look to texts like Genesis 14, may we be reminded that we have a high priest, a priest whose kingdom and priesthood is forever and who has placed us in a covenant, a much better covenant, one that is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It's in the name of Christ that we as children of Abraham pray and we praise you this day.
and ask that we too would be a blessing to the nations. Amen.